Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg B., joined as always by Jacob. Hello. And today we're going to be reviewing Machi Koro and its expansions. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. So we just got out of another game of Terraforming Mars. Yes! It's finally back in print, and I've managed to bribe you a little bit to get you over the place today. Yep. I mean, anytime you say Terraforming Mars is involved, I'm like, yep, let's, there we go. That's what we're doing. Yep, exactly. So we went through and we played a four-player game. Mm -hmm. With two new players. It was us and then two of our friends who had never played before. Mm -hmm. And we used the drafting mechanic in order to do the cards. Right. And then we did play with Corporate Era. Right. So it was definitely a longer game. You know, you have the situation where you don't have any income to start out with. You've got a lot of cards added to the deck that sort of center around increasing income, increasing your industrial capacity, things like that. So it was a a longer game. But for that reason, you know, the draft was all the more important because, you know, without being able to sort of get your hands on the types of cards that you want, you're really going to feel that disadvantage. Whereas, you know, if we had played a non-corporate era game, you know, the draft is nice, but less impactful because you've still got these baseline levels of income. Exactly, exactly. And I thought that it really showed that this game can be really long. Yes. Like, we were playing it for quite a few hours, and I mean, it was a lot of fun, it was enjoyable. But I think you mentioned this at some point when we were playing, that corporate era cards are probably best for fewer players. Yeah, definitely. So, like, if you're playing with corporate era cards, play two players, maybe three. And then if you're playing anything more than that, just play with the base cards, remove the corporate era, and just go that way. Right. Alternatively, I mean, you know, if you're willing to, you know, sit down and play for three four hours then Mm -hmm. maybe a five-player corporate era game is what you're looking for just you know it's something to be aware of going into it that it's going to add you know not just a static amount of time you're going to probably double the amount of time that you spend playing the game by playing corporate era instead of regular exactly exactly it does take a while to get through them there's a lot of cards to read and just a lot of ramping up that you have to work on doing yeah and it was interesting. It was a good game. Everyone thought I was very far ahead. I didn't. Well, you you were definitely very far ahead at the point where we were pointing out that you were very far ahead. I don't know that, about that. That quickly turned into yeah. not the case because we had the UN in play. So they were able to use their ability to just, you know, oh, I gained one TR. No, I gained two. So they were really able to scale up in a way that I don't think you were able to, but you didn't have a strong early game. Uh, and we're, we're a big threat there. I think that the biggest problem that I had with my strategy was just that I just did not do anything on the planet. True. Very true. I just, I concentrated on the cards. I tried to go very card-centric. But then at the same time, I didn't get some of the cards that would get generate more victory points to compete. So things like the other microbe cards or other things like that, that gather more and more on them. I did get, like, the livestock later on in the game and that kind of stuff. And that did give me a sizable chunk of points, but it was a little bit too little too late. Right. Yeah. But it was really interesting. Um, You know, it was good to to play another game, see how, you know, now that we're not experienced, but more experienced than the people we were playing with, to sort of see how fresh eyes look at the game, see the types of strategies they tried to implement, see how successful they were 
in some cases. Um, and it was it was a lot of fun, as always. You know, that, that game is just fantastic, uh, and I'll take every opportunity to play it. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a lot of fun. It was also nice to see just how well some people actually listen to rules. It's, <laughs> it's true. Oh, my God. Yeah, we definitely had to explain <laughs> the same rules half a dozen times each for half a dozen rules. Yeah. So, yeah. Listening comprehension, y'all. It's good. It's important. Or just listening. <laughs> true. True. Yeah, that's that's definitely the sort of highlight of what we've been playing lately. I know you've had a chance to play around with the Race for the Galaxy app. Yes, I have. And again, this is going to be another plug for, well, the giveaway. So we are having the giveaway right now. It's going on until this upcoming Tuesday. And the app itself is great. I really like playing it. I play it on the Metro when I'm going to work every day. And it's awesome. Really quick, really easy to play. Uh, I've been actually playing with one hand, which is <laughs> nice. So you can play that. And it also, you know, for added DLC, you can also add the expansions and that kind of stuff. So it adds a lot of replayability. And the AI is pretty good. Uh, so it's I'm still playing on the medium AI. I'm still working on like some strategies and that kind of stuff. Sure. Making sure that I know what's best and what's not. But and then you can play matchmaking against other human opponents, correct? Yes, of course. Yes, you can. Uh, as long as you have internet, you can play against other people. Sure. But it's nice to practice against AI. I usually like to do that, especially because, you know, on the Metro, it's a little bit difficult to yeah. actually have a stable connection. A spotty connection, yeah. As a Hearthstone player, I know all about that. <laughs> so. Exactly. But yeah, no, it's it's been a lot of fun. It actually made me want to pick up the base game because I've lived with people who have the base game for a long time. And we played every once in a while, but now that I don't have it, I'm just like, I went and actually picked it up. So I'm glad to have that actually in the collection. And it's one of those games that I forget about sometimes when I'm, you know, playing all these other games and everything like that. It's, it, it really has to rank somewhere up there for me. It's definitely a great game and a lot of fun to play. Yeah, yeah, very well designed. So like as Jacob said... Last week, we announced the giveaway, the Race for the Galaxy app giveaway. So if you like what we've been talking about, or if you know that you're a Race for the Galaxy player and you'd like to get your hands on a digital version, head on over to our website, head on over to our Facebook page. There's a bunch of different ways to enter for a chance to win a free Steam key for the Race for the Galaxy app. There you go. And that's just a quick look at what we've been playing. Bring her in, boys. Back it up, back it up, back it up. Wait, what? It rolled a six? We ain't getting paid here, guys. All right, shut it all down. I heard the next time over, they rolled a three. It's raining money over there, guys. Let's go. Machikoro, opportunistic construction workers aside, is a delightful game about being the first to build up your town. It's got fantastically cartoonish illustrations. And all in all, it's a pretty fun little game. Yeah, definitely. It's a very simple, like, uh, quick game that you can play in half an hour, 45 minutes, something like that. But it still has enough to keep you coming back. Right. The way that it works is it is a tableau building game. You're trying to finish building the landmarks that you have for your town. And whoever is the first person to build them all wins. There you go. The way that you do that is you have to pay money in order to build them. But money is not very easy to come by. You need to first build up the rest of your town so that money starts flowing in. And the way that you do that is you buy cards 
with the current money that you have, which will then allow you to build more later on and get more money both from the bank and from your fellow players. Right, and each one of these cards that you're buying represents a different sort of building. You know, you've got shops, you've got processing stations, you've got restaurants, all these different sorts of things that, you know, you'd find in a little town somewhere in Japan. And all of those things contribute to your income, and they do so in slightly different ways. And these cards that you're buying are buildings that would be found in, you know, a given town in Japan somewhere. So you've got restaurants, industries, maybe a stadium, things like that. Each of those buildings has a number or a range of numbers at the top, which correspond to a die roll. So for example, one building might say at the top, four. Anytime four is rolled, pending other conditions, which we'll talk about momentarily, that building is going to generate income. So the different types of buildings do generate at different times in a turn. There are blue buildings, primary industries, things like cornfields, livestock pastures, things that are actually producing raw goods, those produce money anytime someone rolls that number. Could be your turn, could be an opponent's turn, doesn't matter. If that number or a number in that range is rolled, you're going to get money for it. Green are secondary industries. These are things like processing plants, bottling factories, things that are going to take those raw goods and turn them into finished goods. These can only generate money on your turn. So if you have something that triggers on, say, a 10, if you roll a 10, congratulations, you get money. But if the person to your left rolls a 10, doesn't really matter. Then you've got red buildings, restaurants. These are exactly the opposite of green buildings. These don't trigger on your turn because instead of taking money from the supply, each time your opponent rolls that number, you get to take money directly from them. So it can be to your advantage to try to build on numbers where they have things as well, but that's some strategy and we'll get into that later. Finally, there's purple buildings, which are actually unique. You can have multiple copies of every other type of building. You can have five cornfields, you can have eight flower shops, but you can only have one stadium, you can only have one publishing company, and these are buildings that are very, very powerful because they allow you to take money from every opponent simultaneously. However, they are fairly restrictive in that they can only be activated on your own turn. Yeah, and so you're collecting all this money and then you're building the landmarks. Now the landmarks themselves, are not just money sinks. They actually do have abilities. So you have, for example, the train station, which is the first major landmark that you make. And as you would think in a small town, that's probably a really big deal. It can open a lot more things for you. So what that does is that actually lets you roll two dice instead of just one. So normally when you start off, you have one die, so all the buildings would it be like one through six. Now, once you have the train station, you can now choose if you want to roll the other die. And if you do, you add the two numbers together and you can activate anything from 2 all the way up to 12. The other landmarks are also equally as useful. Some of them will give you a whole another turn if you roll doubles. Others will give you income if you don't produce anything. So they have really powerful effects, not only just bringing you to endgame. Right. Each building and each landmark is an important step in getting towards the final goal of building all your landmarks. It's also important to point out that even though the train station is naturally the early one that you'll go for, being that it's the cheapest and opens up the most opportunity, you don't actually have to purchase the landmarks in any particular order. If you manage to get a couple of lucky rolls and you save up 30 gold, you can buy the most expensive landmark straight off the bat. And if you do so, it's usually a pretty good idea. 
Exactly. So now you buy these cards, but there are different ways of getting the cards themselves. And in the base game of Machigoro, you have all of them set out and you can buy any card available. This lets you really concentrate on your strategy and go for what you think is going to be best. When buying a card, you can only buy one per turn. So when you have any kind of buy phase, even if you have all the money to buy two cards or something like that, you can still only buy one. And once you buy that, that part of your turn is over. Now turn order does matter in, in terms of how the different effects come about. If you roll a die that activates a blue and a red building, for example, it would first activate the blue building, so you would get whatever income that is, as well as everyone else who has that card. And then it would activate the red building, so if you didn't have enough money at first, you would actually have to pay from the money that you just received. So this does matter, and it is definitely a strategic consideration in the game. Right. It can be really frustrating when you are having to give away all of your money that you've just earned. However, the sort of counterbalance to that is when you build your own restaurants and start doing it to other people. So there's a lot of tit for tat in this game, and it's really important to have even coverage over all of the numbers. Because, you know, if you have really great coverage, you've got four or five or six buildings at a fairly narrow range, you're limiting your options, especially if those buildings are green or red and can only activate on very certain turns. Exactly. So they also have two expansions of the game that really add to Machikora as a whole. The two expansions are the Harbor and Millionaire's Row. The Harbor is the first one that came out and really fundamentally changes a few things about the game. First off, in the base game of Machikoro, you have all of your cards laid out and you can buy any of them. In the Harbor expansion, they change that. What they say is you shuffle all the cards that are available together, and you draw cards until you have 10 different cards out. If you ever draw a double, you put that on a stack so you can you know, have multiple of this one type of card, and you can buy a lot of different ones. Whenever, whenever you empty one of the stacks, you draw another card, and keep going refilling that way. This adds a little bit of randomness to the uh, to the game and prevents a single strategy from pretty much winning because you really have to adapt to how the game is shaping up at that time. You might never get a single card that is on a six. You might have most cards that are on seven to 12, so you have to rush the train station in order to be able to use most of the cards. Or you may never get one of the higher number cards. There you go. Uh, the other thing that it adds is it adds two new landmarks. So it does increase the, the length of the game a bit because now you have to go from five landmarks to seven. And the city hall and the harbor are the two that are added. The harbor is the most interesting because it is the first card in the game that actually allows you to add points to whatever you roll. So when you roll, if you get a 10, I believe, then you can add up to one or two points to that to get your final total. Millionaire's Row, the second expansion, also changes the status quo in a lot of interesting ways, but these are more aimed at rebalancing. One of the sort of pitfalls of the original Machikoro game is that it's fairly easy for someone to run away with the game. If they get lucky on their rolls, if they can manage to amass a certain amount of money before you have the option to, then there's a good chance that they're going to be buying up all the good buildings, and especially since in the base game, the selection of which buildings are in play is static, they can pick up whatever they want that's going to fuel their victory. 
Millionaire's Row aims to take these frontrunners down a peg by introducing a couple of really interesting restaurants that only take money from people who have built a minimum number of landmarks if they roll that value. These are also really, really big hitters. One of them, the Members Only Club, actually takes all of the money that that player currently has. So this is a huge change, and it can be very, very dangerous for someone to get out too far ahead because they're going to swing back and be really punished for it. Millionaire's Row also does introduce one new change, which is renovations. Renovations are tokens, representing bulldozers, that you can put onto certain buildings, which causes them to only produce every other time that their die is rolled. In some cases, this is a benefit. Wineries, for example, can only produce every other turn because they renovate themselves, but when they do produce, it's a really high number. On the other hand, it can also be a penalty because there are certain purple buildings that allow you to put renovation tokens on your opponent's buildings. So it does add a little bit of more play interaction than just the rolls and then just the cards that you're holding. Uh, you actually have some direct closing of other buildings and say, hey, if you are getting hit by the members only club way too often, you can go ahead and boom, turn it off, rather than have it go to a renovation. So now it only happens every other turn. Right. And this level of interaction is actually something that really makes the game more interesting because by default, there's not a lot of interaction. You're mostly just keeping your head down, rolling, and hoping that you don't roll a number for your opponent's restaurant. There's no actual active way that you can influence what's happening to your opponent apart from maybe stealing the card that they want. Yeah. And that brings us a little bit to how the game works more in terms of strategy, in terms of how you play the game outside of just the rules. So there are definitely many strategies that you can take. One of the major ones is the fact that you don't ever have to actually roll two dice. If you play your cards right, if the right cards come up, you can always go for the lower ones and then avoid many of the pitfalls that could happen when rolling like double dice and changing the entire probability of which numbers come up. So on a regular dice, you know, if you have the same probability for a one and a six, it'll happen. But when you have two dice, you're actually more likely to roll a six, a seven, or somewhere in between in the middle there. So some people can really prey on, on those numbers using some restaurants and other things like that and get a lot of money from other people. Right. And that actually gets into one other thing, which I mentioned before, which is the sort of coverage that you want across the distribution of numbers. Buildings in the center tend to be more run-of-the-mill. They tend to be average production values, or buildings that have large ranges tend to share these characteristics as well. They're good for getting a consistent drip of money, but you're not going to have any spectacular turns with them. On the other hand, there are buildings that only activate on one very specific number, and it tends to be an outlier. Things like an 11, a 9, things that are very, very hard to actually come up with. Those are going to give you some huge turns, but they're also really hard to hit, and they're susceptible to that renovation thing that we mentioned before, since their numbers are coming up so infrequently. This adds some interesting strategic depth. You know, you have to choose very carefully what cards you're trying to get. In the base game, that just means adapting your strategy. But in the expansions, where you have sort of this revolving selection of cards that are available to you, that can sometimes mean making do with what you've got. You know, you have to fill in the holes whenever the cards become available, especially since the most popular cards, the sort of consistent ones or the gems, diamonds in the rough, they're going to get snatched up pretty quick. You might not even have the opportunity. And this brings us to our section, No Game is Perfect. So 
Machikoro, it has a lot of good mechanics, but but especially the base game can really favor one strategy. So it's almost to the point where it's broken in some ways that if, when you're playing the base game, if you have all the cards just laid out, you just go and try to blitz and buy as many of the low-numbered cards as possible, and then never go up to the risk of the larger and larger cards. So this is a, a strategy that actually is one of the big things that is fixed in the Harbor expansion and the Millionaire's Row. The whole part of the change where the cards that are available are now random, based on what is in the deck, shuffling that up and showing whatever comes up, that really helps this one this type of like one strategy problem. When you're not sure what's gonna come up, you just have to innovate and try to figure out what can work with what, rather than just going like, okay, I'm just gonna keep buying this as, as much money as I have, and just keep rolling what I want until I win the game. Right, and that's a great example of sort of an imperfection that the expansions really aim to address. They don't quite get there completely, but they definitely do make it better than the base game. Unfortunately, one of the imperfections that I don't think the expansions really get at as well is this idea that rolls can just be devastating. You can plan for it, you know, you can try to give yourself an even spread, but sometimes you're just going to roll poorly. And if that happens repeatedly in the early game, you're going to fall behind, possibly even to the point where you can't access those sort of built-in blue shell benefits that are in Millionaire's Row. It's definitely a game that can favor the lucky, not even the bold. Exactly. Luck is a huge part of it. It is similar to Catan in that way that you know, if you roll the correct numbers at the right time, you're going to win. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how good other people's strategies are. If you, in the very beginning of the game, roll a whole bunch of uh, resources or everyone else rolls poorly and they feed right into your restaurant so you're getting a whole bunch of money, you go skip a few of the landmarks ahead, get one of the ones that is more powerful of what, what you're doing exactly, and boom, you've got yourself such a leg up that it's really hard to catch. Yeah, absolutely. So... All of these issues, it's still a really fun, playful game. I don't think I've ever seen a game that has quite this energy and quite this just fun, you know, just the way that it looks, the way that it plays. It's very quick. It's a lot of fun. All that said, at the end of the day, I still think I'm actually going to give it a skip it. Just the sheer inconsistency, even with the expansions, even with the sort of mitigation that comes from those buildings that are designed to trip up the front runner, those buildings that are designed to try to force you to expand your range of options as opposed to simply sticking with one strategy, I still think the game falls short in a lot of ways, probably because I'm not a big fan of chance. If you are, take my review with a grain of salt, but for now, I'm saying skip it. Yeah, I'm going to be slightly more, I guess, optimistic about the game. Uh, I am going to give it a play. I think that the style of the game, the the art itself, is, just makes it a pleasure to play in general. And if you're in the mood for that kind of just luck-based game that has just a little bit of strategy, it can be a lot of fun. Uh, I definitely do enjoy bringing it to table every once in a while. But as a caveat, not just the base game. If you are going to play it, play it with at least the Harbor expansion. Because I think the base game for me would be an immediate skip it. But with the Harbor expansion, it would be a play it. And then the Millionaire's Row also adds some stuff to it. A bit of rebalancing the blue shell mechanic, as, as Greg was saying. 
but if you could just play with one expansion, at least put in the harbor, and it changes the game almost completely. Well, there you go. Before we end this review, we do want to talk about a few games that we find to be very similar to Machikoro in feel. If these are games that you like, maybe you should check out Machikoro, or if you know that you like Machikoro, check these out. The first is Dominion. As we mentioned, picking cards from sort of a array that's in front of you, building a tableau, building a engine that's based on chance, very, very similar to Dominion. The expression is slightly different. In Dominion, the chance comes in the form of what cards am I going to draw after I've shuffled, whereas in this, it's based on dice rolling. But at the same time, it's really about trying to manage that chance and ensure that you end up with a stronger engine than your opponents. Exactly. The other game is a little bit further out of the wheelhouse of these kinds of games, but it's one that we've talked about quite a few times and is definitely one of our favorites, and that's Above and Below. Now, Above and Below also has a very similar kind of, pretty much you're, you're building a town. So it has a very similar kind of town building mechanic where you're using your workers and you're trying to build the town and it has a, an art style that's a lot of fun um, and just the feel of the game is decently similar to Machikoro. The differences are mostly that the luck is a bit further removed from the game where you don't need it just for the buildings and that kind of stuff. You more need it for things that you want to do in the game but don't necessarily have to in order to win. So if you abhor luck, you can still play above and below with people who like the luck aspect of the games and you would still be able to win just as much. And there you have it. That's our review of Machi Koro. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope that you enjoyed it. Don't forget that WashingCon tickets are on sale now. WashingCon is happening from September 9th to September 10th, so it's coming up real soon. There are going to be a lot of really cool people there, awesome game designers, and a lot of amazing games. And we're going to be there. We're going to be doing some really cool stuff in terms of the panels and other things. So we hope that you will join us there. Also, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, don't forget to sign up for the giveaway of Race for the Galaxy on Steam. We have the giveaway on our Facebook page as well as on our website, so please go ahead and check that out. And don't forget to join us next week when we review Takenoko.